Meaningful Mindful Work, spoken by Pastor Alex G. Good morning, Metro. You know, I was told that the late crowd is really the spiritual crowd. No, no, that's what, no, that's what, that's what I heard. Um, you come to the late service, you can sleep off your hangover and come and worship Jesus. I am, I am really, really glad to be here. It's good to see new faces. It's good to see old faces and, and friends. And I can't believe that it's been six years since I've ministered here. But um, it's really, it's really good to be here. Um, God is doing tremendous things in my heart and tremendous things with you. And I, I just love having this time just to share and worship together. Um, I just want to say that uh, I really, you know, it seems like, okay, this is like we're having a little bro down right here for just a moment. But for pastors and for, for people in leadership, particularly pastors, it's lonely because you want to be strong for people. And, um, and so I try to find out folks that I can connect with. So a couple of years ago, a mutual friend of ours, Pastor Dave Gibbons from uh, New Song Church in California, invited a number of pastors to come for a gathering. Now, Pastor Peter and I did not know that that gathering meant skydiving. And, um, and I think at the time, your pastor was an intern at New, at, uh, at New Song. So he was kind of shy. So the other pastors were talking. He was just like really quiet, sitting with his leg crossed like it is right now. And, um, and, uh, and I remember that he was as tall sitting down as I was standing. And so <laughs> we noticed each other in the room. And to this day, I still tease him that he was sort of uppity and wouldn't say hello. He said, man, I didn't know anybody. I was kind of, um, you know, I was kind of nervous. But we jumped out of an airplane together. And because we didn't want to do it, um, we were really frightened. We had, to say, we had to sign like 15 pages of disclaimers. Seriously, we had to indemnify. Is that the right word? Any lawyers here? Indemnify people and stuff. Um, I was so afraid. Like I got down on my knees and prayed like my grandmother did. Like I felt like I, I couldn't stand up and talk to Jesus. I got on my knees. Um, while I was praying, like some old Korean cuss words slip out because I didn't know. And um, I was scared. And so people are like, what? There's a brother praying and cussing in Korean. Um, but so we had so much fun jumping down and jumping out of the plane. We, I jumped first. He was number two. Yeah, they had the brother go first. And um, <laughs> make sure that the parachutes are working and everything like that. And um, got back, went to the hotel, and everyone was checking out, going back to their homes across the country. And uh, I remember we were staying at the Atrium Hotel in, um, um, across from the John Wayne Airport. And I got about a half mile away. I just felt the spirit tug my heart and said, go back and get that guy's phone number. So I did a U-turn on that big MacArthur Boulevard, I think it was. I did a U-turn, came back. He was still sitting in the lobby. I said, hey, can I get your phone number? And uh, because he was on my heart. So just even though we didn't talk a lot, except when we jumped out of the plane because we were afraid. Um, but I got his number. And I was in town preaching several years ago. And um, I had like an extra like half day before I flew back. And I called him and said, hey, do you remember me? And he drove into the city, picked me up, we went out to eat, and we've just been connecting every, every since. And when I prayed, when we prayed together one time, because um, I remember I was going through something, we prayed, I heard his heart. His heart for God, his ability to touch God's heart. And I said, man, I need friends who can touch the throne like that, who, um, who, can, who can talk to Jesus um, like that. And it was really, really powerful. Just one more, just a little funny thing about this. We were, we were someplace overseas, and... Um, and uh, we've been a lot of places together, but we had gotten into some little trouble. And so he had a feeling like I might get killed that night. And um, 
So like he didn't come downstairs like to sleep in front of my door or he didn't say, hey man, you know, hey, here's a hammer or something. He just like, hey Alex, I, in the morning I just thought there was gonna be some retaliation so I wanted you to know I left my door open last night in case I heard you screaming bloody murder. I was gonna run all the way downstairs and save you. And I said, that's the only time I ever thought about not being his friend. I left my door open in case I heard you screaming bloody murder. So, so anyway, thank God no one killed me that night. Or tried to, because I really would have been on my own. Um, but uh, just, just, a, just, a, uh, uh, just a great friend. And, and I, Metro, I love you all. Many of you don't know me, but I have a heart for what you're doing and for where God has taken you. And I really want to just encourage you um, in the journey today. Let me just pray for just a moment. Jesus, it's with so much joy that, I, that I'm able to be with your people, your daughters and your sons. Um, what a beautiful mosaic of what the body of Christ is like and can be like, perhaps should be like. I pray that your spirit will move deeply and sweetly in our hearts as we understand your word together. May we hear what it means to really serve you faithfully. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this community. Thank you for the city. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are alive and you are well. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, there's a passage I want to share out of Nehemiah 4, and um, it's Nehemiah rebuilding the city wall. I'll get, I'll get into why, why we're here, why we're at this particular passage, what's really going on in just a little bit. But for the sake of time, I won't read all the verses in Nehemiah 4. But um, some enemies, some, um, some folks who are discouragers, some haters, uh, Sambalit and Tobias, uh, Tobiah, we're trying to discourage Nehemiah and the people from building. You ever try to do something that's worthwhile and you feel like people are in your ear trying to discourage you? Um, maybe you're a good student and then you have someone in your class saying, come on, they didn't say you have to do all that. Um, you know, you got a nice book cover and everything over this. You know, you got it all, you know, typed nicely. Um, and they're trying to discourage them because um, the, the Jewish people that were, return, were returning back home had already been so demoralized that it was easy to, have, to give a setback. If you've already been beaten down in life, sometimes it's easy just to push you back down. But because Nehemiah has such a strong vision, which we'll talk about a little later, he was able to push against the oppression and basically just told them, hey, we're, we're, we're going to keep doing this. In verse 5, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? And even if a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back to their own heads. Give them over to plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults into the face of the builders. So we built in the face of all this opposition. He's like, you know, even in spite of that. So we built the wall. All of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Um, King James Version says that... Um, I think it says the people had a mind to work, an attitude to work in order to rebuild God's work. Um, I'm going to go back to this passage for just a moment because this is really about rebuilding ruined places. I took the name Nehemiah to, um, for the name of our nonprofit that we started about 25 years ago in Madison because when I studied the book of Nehemiah, I realized that when he built the city walls, he was trying to protect what God had given his people. 
Many of the people who had returned from Babylonian captivity lost their native language and their culture. It was stripped away. When the Babylonians took them out of their own land, they moved them to places, separated them, would not let them learn their languages, which is what happened to a lot of our people groups in this country, um, to dispirit, to discourage, and to demoralize them. And Nehemiah was coming to unify the people who had not been a team, to try to build a we out of a lot of eyes for the sake of a good work. And it gives such a powerful context to the church because the church is in the midst of ruins as well. The church of Jesus Christ finds itself in a, in a great upheaval of what's happening in our country and in the world. When I say our country, I don't, just, I don't just mean who's in the White House or what's going on in the White House. I just mean trouble, drugs, um, addiction, problems, murders, mass murders. It's just so much that's going on. We're finding ourselves in a heap. But the church can't run from these problems. They run to them. I hate snow, and I'm from Wisconsin. We had two snowstorms last week. Now, I know I can't talk to you guys because I heard you had floods and rain and you had some big hurricane or hurt, yeah, a couple years ago. But here's the thing. In Wisconsin, people who are in the snow removal business don't get up after a snowstorm and say, crap, some more snow. They get excited because that's big, big money. So when they see what we think is a problem, it's business for them. They become eager in addressing the issue. When the church hears all hell breaking loose, We don't need to take off and run for the suburbs. We need to stand and face some of this craziness because some of it is pervasive because the church has abdicated its responsibility. Because the church exists because of the broken world around us. It exists to take on the broken places. I was going to do this at the end of service, but I'm going to see if I can work my technological magic. Can we do a picture? Can we do that picture? I love, old. this is an old photograph. This is circa 1948 in Southeast Missouri. Dispirited people, because I like to try to use images so that I can take myself back in scripture to think about what does it feel like to be dispirited. It's 1940s and so it's not legal. And although legal rights have been given in the 1860s, black people still were not able to vote in other groups. We're not able to vote without risking their lives or their businesses or their farms. But this is a church, very poor church, they're sharecroppers. What that means is just legalized slavery. It meant that, you're, that, that you had a different kind of owner. At least in slavery, you did not have to pay money back. If you were a sharecropper, you were just as hard as slaves. And you owed money. You had to pay for the seed and for the water and probably the sunshine. For the irrigation, for the tools. For the travel, um, for harvest. And so it's very dispirited folks. But in the midst of just harsh realities, harsh Jim Crow laws. This group of people found a way to believe and trust in God. Now, this just represents any people group. And so, even if you're not black, I'm sorry. Um, that was a joke. You can laugh. That's just, <laughs> oh my gosh, I need old Metro back. Come on, come on. If you laugh, I'll finish sooner. But think about photographs you have of your family. Churches that helped us stand in a very difficult and a very painful time. But this church stood when people's hearts were broken. They could not own anything. They worked all day, didn't have anything, which makes matters worse. In this country in the 1940s, a tuberculosis epidemic broke out. And when you're already discouraged, you're already broken, 
Perhaps you've already had a, a breakdown because life is so hard and you're susceptible to diseases. It hit poor people. And so I appreciate this place because this is called Faith Temple Church of God in Christ. And in the 1940s, my grandmother had four children and none of them had the same father. She was a victim of abuse and in her 20s, she had a nervous breakdown. And because of that weakness, her system was weakened and she caught tuberculosis. She was a non-Christian woman, but she was afraid of the harsh realities of Jim Crow South. She carried a knife, an ice pick, and a 45 in her purse. Because she was not going to let anybody do to her little girls what had been done to her. But she caught tuberculosis and the doctors told her she was going to die. My grandmother went to a prayer meeting. She's this woman sitting like right in the middle. You see the guy with the tall guy with the suit? Kind of come down slightly to his right. That woman right there. I don't have a pointer, but you guys see who she is. That lady right there. <laughs> trying to see them I can point with. But you know her. Because the church didn't run from problems, they weren't afraid of people who were contagious. So Pastor Wright and his wife next to him, Mother Wright, had a prayer meeting. And my grandmother, who was dying, walked into this church. And Mother Wright laid hands on my grandmother and rebuked tuberculosis. That night, Jesus came from heaven, put new lungs in my grandmother. She used to sleep sitting up propped on a chair like this for two years, she would tell me, because she would cough up blood. She slept for the first time in years. This was 1947. My grandmother led me to the Lord when I was a little boy. She helped plant the church. I now pastor. Not only did she put my first diapers on me, when I went into full-time ministry, she put my robe on me for the first time. She lived a life that helped this cute little girl right here. That's my mama with that purse coming across her chest. <laughs> my grandmother led me to the Lord, and I helped lead my mom to the Lord. My mom in this church used to be a Sunday school teacher, maybe the next church, a Sunday school teacher, because she had a heart for kids and she was brilliant. When I helped lead my mom back to the Lord, my mom became my Sunday school teacher. I learned Old Testament history from my mother. But if my grandmother had have died because the church didn't exist for the broken in society, my grandmother with a nervous breakdown, mental health issues, four kids each having a different last name became community for her. They didn't look like her like she was nasty. They didn't call her skank, hoe, or jailbait. They called her sister and welcomed her and her children. And when she moved to Chicago with her husband, because the saints told her, you got to stop shacking up, baby. So she got married. Some of y'all don't know what shacking is. You do, you just don't know what I mean when I call it shacking. The church watched my family. We have gotten fancier. We've gotten wireless mics. We can broadcast, parents can sit in the nursery and watch me preach. But we have lost the ability to be the people of God. Technology is no excuse for the absence of high touch. 
the church when it did not own buildings, the church when it did not own fields, the church when its people could not vote, when there were boys and girls and uncles and aunties during the week and Sundays were the only days we could put a suit on, the church became the place where we got dignity. And we do a whole lot of other things, but do we come to church on Sundays thinking, my job is to restore the dignity of broken people. In fact, we try to make it hard for dignityless people to come into our churches. Because we don't want the folks who've lost hope, don't have dignity either. We just have the money and the credit cards to go downtown Fifth and Avenue and cover up our brokenness, cover up our lack of dignity, cover up our mistakes, cover up all of our issues. And the people outside don't know that the people inside are suffering the same things. And the people inside are so broken, we don't know how to come to Jesus fully, so we don't know how to bring anybody else either. And so demoralized people need a gospel that reminds us that we have a purpose. The people of Israel sinned against God because they forgot about the poor. They forgot about the disenfranchised. They forgot about the mamas with four kids. Everybody's got a commentary on why she's doing it, but nobody's diagnosed her mental health issues. Now, she lived in another neighborhood and looked different, and the addition was meth, it would be a different issue. Pastor Peter said I could step on toes in the latest service. <laughs> so we exist to do this. We exist, but we can't show the world our solutions until they knew the problems. Mother Wright didn't know that my grandmother needed prayer until she came in there coughing and coughing blood into a napkin and said, I, I got tuberculosis and they're about to take my children and put them in different homes and put me in a tuberculosis colony. And she said, oh, no, they're not. But it wasn't until she knew what the issue was. We walk in church preaching stuff, but that might not be where they live in. She needed somebody that could speak to somebody with a mental health issue. What does the Bible say about nervous breakdown? What does the Bible say about someone who's got four different children but want to bring it together but don't know how? Have I messed it up too bad? We have abdicated our ability to be the church by trying to be some institution, some organization that has the fluff but does not have the power. I would rather go back and have power than technology that does not lead people to Christ. Now listen, I love technology. So don't think I'm trying to crack on technology. I saw a couple of things and one camera I will steal before I go back home. <laughs> as well as a couple of members from the worship team. <laughs> and that sister with the flag. <laughs> she gotta go. Okay, oh, I got to get back on point. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Jesus. But the church, if we ignore the issues of society, if we ignore the issues of society, then God ignores us. Oh, we just think that Israel got in trouble because Israel couldn't keep Israel's pants up. Israel couldn't keep Israel's skirt down. We always think that falling is sexual in nature. We always think that it's idolatry in nature. But Ezekiel 16 and 8 says, listen, your sin is worse than your sister Sodom because she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor or the needy. You're worse than that. We always talk about just certain kinds of sins of Sodom, but Ezekiel 16 and 49 says Sodom's sin was she was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, did not help the poor or the needy. That's Bible. I didn't make that up. 
So when the church begins to forget the call to the broken and the needy and the hurting, we miss an opportunity for God to meet us. Malachi 3 and 5 says, God says, so I will come and put you on trial and I will be quick to testify against the sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. I'm not trying to be political here. I'm trying to be biblical. Scripture is saying, I will testify against you. Now, listen, if God in the end is the judge and gets to call stuff and God comes to the witness stand, you've done wrong and God shows up on your case. I swear by the power of me. I swear before me that what I'm saying, what I'm about to say is truth. Think about God testifying. Who can come to your defense when God testifies against you? I'm sorry. Let me just, did I lose something? Here I go. I'm sorry about that. Did I get that right? I think I'm okay. I'm not. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not going to be invited. That's what I did last time. You didn't invite me back anymore. (laughs) Pastor Chung Khan, people. Chung Khan, Pastor Chung Khan, people. So because Israel did not do that well, it was carried off in captivity by the Assyrians. The prophet said, Judah, watch what happened to the north. If God does not spare Israel and allow the Assyrians to come and get them because of their disobedience, God is going to allow judgment to come and get you. Judah said, no, no, not us. We good. We got the temple. Ain't nothing finna happen down here. We know how to pray. We got prayer meetings. We're in small group. We, we do study time at the coffee shop. We're cool. They didn't listen. And then the Babylonians came and took them away. And in the book actually, of Ezra, And Nehemiah, it is about the people of God coming back to their homeland so that they can begin to rebuild. Um, And this is what this is what's happening in Nehemiah chapter four. Um, The Babylonians carried the Jewish people off because by taking them to a new land, dividing them up so that they can't speak the same language and demoralized the spirit and deluded them, as I said. But then in the book of Ezra, we see that the Persians beat the Babylonians and they are now in charge. The, the Persians have a different philosophy. They said, you know what? If we make people happy, let them go back to their homeland. Let them have their little language back. Let them take their little church trinket, trinkets back. Give them their tambourines and their, and their communion glasses and their children's church materials and their sticky pads and their guest packages and all of these things. They'll be happy. So God touched Cyrus and told him, send the Jewish people back home to rebuild the temple and the walls in Jewish society because they've learned their lesson and I want them to rebuild. And they went back home to rebuild. This is going off about a hundred years or so. God comes and he touches Jared. He comes and touches Nehemiah's heart and says, Nehemiah, I want to do something with you. And this one, I want to get into this story and then I got to just start moving through this a little faster. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer for Artaxerxes, which meant his job was to taste it to make sure that there was no poison in it. Could you imagine if that was your job? You think you got a bad job, but could you imagine your job? You might hate your job, but at least your job is not to drink your boss's coffee and to find out somebody's trying to kill him or her. And sometimes I bet you Artaxerxes was trying to make sure that it wasn't the enemy that was trying to kill him, and then other times trying to find out that it wasn't his wife. And so... And so Nehemiah's job was really a lab rat. 
a yellow canary in the mines and a taste tester. So when the king comes in and he's eating his breakfast and he's feeling good about life and he looks over and Nehemiah just broke down and just crying. The king is thinking, oh my God, somebody got me. (laughs) So when he says, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, what's wrong? I don't think the king was all nice. I mean, come on. I mean, how often does your boss ask you about your kids and your family and how did your little mini marathon go and um, how's Johnny's little recital going? You know, hey, hey, did you get that report done? And so when the king sees him, he's like, Nehemiah, what? (laughs) Nehemiah, what's wrong? What's wrong? Can you talk to me? How many fingers am I holding up? Security, somebody got the cupbearer. And Nehemiah said, my heart is heavy because I just asked my family how the Jewish people are doing and coming back to the homeland and it's not going really well. And the king, his heart was touched. He was a Persian leader. And he said, you can go back and take a look at what's going on. I'm going to give you resources. Let me just tell you something. For a church or the people of God whose hearts are bent on serving the plan of God, God will resource you. Let me tell you first of all how bad God is. The Babylonians came and took everything. Nebuchadnezzar was just a jerk. He just came and took all their stuff, took their microphones and their guitars and their songbooks and the dance flags. He just took everything. He didn't even know what it was. He was like, hey, hey. And so he's like, what is this? And then just took all that little holy stuff. Because God is like, look, you ain't going to serve me, so you don't need the trinkets. I'm going to take it all. But the, but the Persians said, we're going to take it all back. Give it all back to them because if they're going to be happy, they're going to work hard, and everybody's going to be real happy. Let me tell you something. You might be working under an oppressive enemy. But after a while, God's going to show you that your enemy has got an enemy. Don't worry about it. Listen, don't you try to get all ugly. Don't you try to get all in it. I know you want to fix it. I know all of this. You know vengeance is somebody else's, but you you want your own vengeance. Like, I don't need the Lord for this. I got this, Lord. But I want you to know that there comes a time that the people who have oppressed you, God will allow them to be oppressed and will break that hold over you. Because God will not allow people to keep you from your purpose and what God wants you to do. You just keep your eyes on God. But eventually, God brought in the Persians to subdue the Babylonians and then sent God's people back home to do God's work. Cyrus said, God of of heaven has called me to let his people go back home. And so Nehemiah was acting under that order. You know, it started with Cyrus and then others got involved in it and then um, Darius, Black folks call him Darius, but um, he came in, Darius, you know, you listen to the Bible on the tape, they call him Darius, we call him Darius, and um, he came in, his other kings came in, but God's sending them back. Let me tell you something. There comes a point in time when society is so jacked up that somebody's going to say, we're going to let the people of God do what they're supposed to do because the world worked a little smoother when they were in position. And they will, God will use them to get ready to get people in position to do what it is they're needing to do. And they begin to rebuild the wall. Because the wall represented protection. It was not isolation. It was protection to regain their, 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 their strength and their moral integrity so they could begin to really follow God's heart. Nehemiah then came and he empowered indigenous leadership, the people who would live there, and who would benefit from the rebuilt. Did I do something else? Sorry. <laughs> it fell again. I didn't even know. I'm so I'm sorry. Sure what's going you know what? I'm, this is really embarrassing. I can just do the hand, I, I can just do a handheld. Do you have a wireless handheld? 
Is it okay? There you go. It's not going to fall off now. I uh, promise. Man, that hurts. <laughs> okay. I, I really wedged it in. You gave me a wedgie. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Okay, okay. That's so embarrassing. Are we okay? Okay, all right, let's go. And so he had the task of leading disenfranchised people who felt so separated back into feeling like a team. It's what I loved about Pastor Wright. How do you take a group of 80 disenfranchised sharecroppers and help them to believe that they are the people of God? Because seven days of the week they had no rights, but on Sunday they touched heaven. Seven days of the week, you step off the sidewalk when somebody's walking by you, but on Sunday, you touching somebody's lungs in the name of Jesus. You're not voting during the week, but you feel you got pulled with heaven. How do you do that? The anointing of God that I believe that's on this ministry. Pastor Chung Kun, the anointing that's on you in this ministry. I know I say that with all respect. I told him in the first service, that's what your mom and dad call you. That's what I like to call you. Because, because I believe in, there's power in authenticity. And so for me, that's a matter of honor. That's not like trying to call him some funny nickname. That's because I kept pressing him until he told me what it was. Because I feel that when I say that to him, he knows I'm talking to his soul and to his core and not who he projects to the world. I want to call him what God calls him. And I think God calls him what his mom and his dad called him. And so when we come in, and you have all these folks, I believe the anointing is on you to begin to bring, this, to bring people hope in the midst of it. When folks ask me in my work with ex-offenders and formerly incarcerated people and former ex-murders, convicted murders, sex offenders, they say, what's the real issue? Is it unemployment? Is it hatred? Is it fatherlessness? Is it racism? What's the issue? I said, the issue is hopelessness. People are demoralized. They don't have hope. They don't believe. And when you don't believe that you have a future, you live like crazy right now. When you don't believe that there's a place in society for you and you don't think you have a future, you go down and don't care who goes down with you. What we're seeing in society with people shooting up malls and colleges and high schools are people who don't give a rip. And they're going to pull down everybody they can because they don't have hope. We've been peddling hope for 2,000 years, but we don't use the hope that we peddle so we don't offer it to the world. And when they come in, we don't know how to show them that sense of community. And Nehemiah took people who were disenfranchised, who never worked together, and he gave them a task, and he gave them job description, and he told them where to work and where to stand, and he gave them purpose. Do you understand that the church can do this? Those folks showed up at church because they had a role, and I don't mean a position. They showed up because they had a purpose. They belonged to a family, and they could make a difference in society and in the community. Metro God is sending you. He's sending you among the community. He's sending you to touch them. Nehemiah's task was to ultimately restore dignity, which is through worship. So their worship, their dignity was restored. They were made family again with God and, 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 and given a sense of community, and they were made strong by their cultural and civic engagement. They were made distinct. When they worshiped, when they restored it, they were made family because God became their father again. When they built community, they became strong. They leaned on each other. But when they began to serve, they became distinct. And God moved and blessed them. Metro, here's something I want you to understand. I think God had to send Nehemiah from Babylon in a Persian court to disenfranchise people 
Because I think sometimes when people become so demoralized, dispirited, and deluded, God often sends outsiders. I think that there are times that God sends people on the outside because they have a way of just saying, hey, I got some ideas. I might not know all the issues, but I want to support you. I'm in a storytelling mood, so just humor me for just a little bit. In the early 1970s, there was a ministry in Madison, Wisconsin, that was called Midvale Baptist Church. Southern Baptist Church, Reverend Stagner was a very tall, stately man with a Southern Texas drawl, um, slick back, brill creamed hair. Um, I love listening to his, 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 his dialect. But he said one day in front of his all-white congregation, and this is just who the church is, all-white congregation, he said, God told me, I I can't do a good Texan, um, uh, so I won't do that today. I'll spare you that. He said, God told me to reach out to the black community. No one in our city had ever done that. So he sent three or four buses. They're called the happy bus. He sent them out to the community where the black kids lived. Because we were just outside because we weren't going to church because our church didn't have children's ministry. There were like three or four black churches that were like within walking distance of our community. We liked the idea of getting up on a bus. On a Sunday, it was the color of the Packers. It was green and yellow. They would take us to Sunday school and they would have all these cool little boards and we would sing about marching in the Lord's army and the Lord's infantry and stuff like that. We used the words we never used before. And um, had these little felt little things that you used and they would give us, they would give us um, um, Kool-Aid. <laughs> Unsweetened Kool-Aid. Now, first of all, If you're going to reach out to black kids, you got to use some sugar. So I just want to tell you right now, all right? Let me just tell you right now, because I almost lost my faith over that unsweetened Kool-Aid. I almost missed Jesus because they was trying to save my teeth. It was my soul. My soul that needed saving. For years, for years, for years, we wrote the happy bus. They would come by on Saturdays to ask if we wanted to go. I met a young guy on that bus when I was about eight. His name was David. I led David to Jesus in eighth grade. My sister was on that bus. I led her to the Lord when she was in fifth or sixth grade. When Pastor Stagner did this, 40% of his deacons walked. 40% of his giving community walked. And there are days I look back, I wish I could find Pastor Stagner. He's, He's still alive. I find him on the internet sometimes. He's going back to ministering in Texas. And I think he probably looks back on his ministry and thinks it was a failure because people left. I am the most tenured minister in the city of Madison, Wisconsin. Not one clergy person. I don't care if they're an imam. I don't care if they're part of a temple, um, a mosque, a hall, a church, a cathedral, a living room. There is not one man or woman who has been in ministry in Madison, Wisconsin longer than I have. Number two is David, the friend I met on that bus. Number three is my sister, Laleda, who rode on the bus. We are the three most tenured ministers in the community. When something breaks out, when a shooting happens, I don't care where I'm in the country, Madison reaches out to me. In fact, I was in the city a couple nights ago. Public radio called me because of some incident that happened, wanted to have me call in on a talk show. I'm one of the go-to folks, but you know who I am? I'm one of Pastor Stagner's inner city kids who's riding on the on a school bus on a Sunday going to get unsweetened Kool-Aid. This man who looked nothing like the community 
doesn't understand I preached around the world. I'm a three-time Urbana preacher. I preached in front of 20,000 folks. Only a few people preached at Urbana's a vicious conference the university puts on. Only a few people that have preached more than three times on the stage. Brenda McNeil is one. Billy Graham is the other. It's a small group of folks who've done it. I, at the invitation of uh, President George Bush, taught at the White House for his staff because they work so hard, many don't get to go to church on Sundays. And Pastor Stagger does not understand, I am fruit of his ministry. I'm sorry he lost deacons, and I'm sorry the church split, but I am here as a result of people who look nothing like me, who love me. That man readied my heart so that when my grandmother said, baby, you must be saved, I knew what she was talking about. God used an older black woman from Cato, Missouri, and a white guy from Texas to pour into my life. Metro, if you think you can't touch a community because you don't look like it, it is not true. Because if you can't love or mentor people that don't look like you, then I'm not saved. And I'm saved. I'm redeemed. And I'm touched by people who love the community. Listen, folks might understand your vision. They might not understand why you're doing what you're doing. But let me tell you something. I feel it when I'm here. I feel your ability. I see the demographics here. I look at the beauty of the diversity here. Don't let the enemy tell you. Don't let the enemy tell you that you can't touch and mentor and serve someone who looks differently than you. Because when God looks down, he doesn't see all the stuff we see when we look up. And he builds a relationship with folks who can help to build what God is telling you to do. Metro. I want to compel you to understand yourselves in light of Christ's work. You can do this. Listen, I want to, I got to, I heard I had a little bit more flexibility, but not a whole lot. I don't want to make y'all mad. Because he told me that y'all are more spiritual, but he also told me y'all get mad fast. No, 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 no. Let me just say this fast because I'm getting hungry anyway. But listen. We often get a chance to look back and think, what if? I want you to look at me and see the future. Pastor An, there are little boys and girls running on this track. There are little boys and girls eating lunch in this school. And in 30 years, they're not going to be talking about Julia Stagner from Texas. They're going to be talking about a tall, good-looking pastor who came and heard God's heart to reach out to people who didn't look like him. And y'all gonna give them some sugar that Kool-Aid and they gonna have some sweetened Kool-Aid. Y'all gonna give them kids some sugar. And some flaming Cheetos. And um, <laughs> I had to throw that in. And they're gonna look and they're gonna be someplace and you won't even be there. They're gonna be preaching in place and they're gonna say, you know what? I went to this church and the people didn't look like me but they felt like family. I felt like family at Midvale. I felt like family. If I saw Pastor Stagner today, if he walked in this place today, I would feel as if Billy Graham or T.D. Jakes or someone had walked up in this place because for me, he created holy ground because he did the unthinkable so that I could do what I'm doing today and that's the work of God. Metro, 
You have the talent, you have the ability, you have the heart, you have the calling, you have the leadership, you have, the, you have it all laying at your feet and all you've got to do is just follow God and say yes to God. And let me tell you something, what's going to happen when you do it? It's going to make Metro more Metro. I thought that I was going to go out into the community and I was going to help people. So one day I was driving around, I was very pastoral and I saw a young guy outside in the street. I just struck up a conversation with him. Um, um, found out he was a drug dealer. So I struck up a conversation because I'm not going to let a drug dealer scare me. And so start talking, invite him to church. He said, I can't come this week, but I promise you I'll be there the following week. Let me tell you something. Drug dealers tell the truth. Oh, y'all better hear me, Metro. Came to church. God transformed his life. Met a beautiful young lady. I officiated at their wedding. He was a felon. Both of his sons are serving in the U.S. military. One is in the Army. One is in the Navy. Beautiful family. Strong men. Grew up in our church, in our ministry. We had purchased a house for men coming out of prison. Because I knew this brother was a former drug dealer, I said to him, are you still shrewd like you were in the streets? He said, yeah, I got a little bit. I said, because I hope God saved your heart, but not your mind. I need y'all to listen to me. This house ain't cash flowing the way it needs to. How would you do it? Now, it's got to be a holy hustle. Because God has not given me a prison ministry. So I need you to breathe before you say anything. The devil is a lie. I need you to breathe. This brother's so honest. The reason he couldn't come to church the following Sunday because he had a drug run. And he knew that once he ran that, he was going to come to church. He said, well, pastor, what I would do is I would move the men out in the house who are already renting from you because their rent is subsidized. Let's find them a better place. I got a place for them. Let's then divide up the room, fix up the beds. Let's go to the Department of Correction. Let's negotiate a contract. That man went and negotiated a contract, and within a year, that house generated $100,000. Oh, I thought I was going to help the little drug dealer. The drug dealer brought $100,000 of clean money. He made it rain for Jesus. Now, we're scared to ask for stuff. We're scared to think shrewd. We're scared to try to figure this out. But this drug dealer made a living thinking creatively. You think you're about to help Englewood? Oh, snap, no. Oh, that's so sweet. You were going to tutor young black kids. You were going to help the Latino kids from La Bar- El Barrio. Oh, no, 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 no. God came up to me after church one Sunday. He said, Pastor, I want to talk to you. Like, when you're preaching, you can't grab everybody. Like, okay, let's get together soon. I said, hey, brother, can you just go have coffee with this guy? Because I can't get to everybody. So he goes and has lunch with him. Same guy. He comes back and says, hey, Pastor, you ready to meet with him? I said, sure. He says, he wants to help us start a loan fund for formerly incarcerated men. I said, how? He said, well, he wanted to give us $10,000 just to donate it to our reentry program. But I talked to him about what the real need was. And so now he's ready to give us a loan fund. He's gonna write a check for $100,000. I'm trying to show you, so I don't talk about this a whole lot because it sounds like you're boasting. But if we don't know what potential's outside, 
you worrying about the cost. Can I just tell you what you losing? By not having people who know and love this community. Can I tell you what you losing? He has helped to make us a prominent reentry ministry in our community. Government looked at what we're doing with housing and gave us a million dollars worth, one and a half million dollars worth of housing stock. They gave us a half million over a year for three years. This man has placed 300 men in jobs. The lieutenant governor came to our church for a meeting, had written up what this man had done and even the numbers of people he had placed. And this man was in one of her prisons just a few years ago. When you reach out to the community, the community reaches out to you. He's made it safe for people to come who are broken. He's made it safe for people who come that are tatted up and pierced up. He's made it safe for people to come who are really hungering for God. And while we're busy looking at what's happening on the outside. Oh, my God. I hope this is making sense. So he said, let me just let me say as I'm finishing up. We rebuilt the wall. We worked together. A bunch of disenfranchised people who were never we, who was just I and the individual. We worked together. We did it. Coop and I, this brother and I rebuilt this. It wasn't me. I didn't go out and do it. I've got the degrees. I got the know-how. I can get the media on, on, on the phone, but I don't know how to work those deals the way he does. But together, we rebuilt the wall. We worked together. You're limping, Metro, if you don't have people with you who know how to reach people, who know how to bring people in. Because if you think that cross is just for people that are nice and just need a little bit of saving and don't understand that in saving someone else, you just might save yourself, you are missing an opportunity to experience the grace of God. Because when I see the grace of God on these folks, I realize, God, I'm only half living for you. This man just got to the place of faith, and he's trusting you like this. And I'm like, God, if you don't mind, well, if you please, if, if you could just help us, you know, put some people in a house, if you help us get people off of drugs. You know, I feel like God just wants to thump me in my forehead and say, boy, open your mouth and ask me for what you need. I will do exceedingly abundantly above what you're able to ask, think, or imagine. When I come in watching people who are strung out on crack and said, God spoke to me while I was high, and they started quoting this psalm that God said to them, I realize my God is too small. He deserves more than just a tambourine beating and an occasional praise. He is the God of the universe. And when I got outside my little enclave called the church and I saw what God was doing in the streets, when people now ask me, how large is your church? I said, which church do you mean? The one inside the walls or outside the walls? Because when I walk outside, I want to, hey, are you doing okay? How you doing? I can walk up into high schools. I have kids who don't even know who they are running and hugging me. The kids who are in my program are grown and adults and family members and their little kids are now on our program. We are working to influence the generation because the people had a mind to work. But if you just think you can do it by yourselves, you're going to miss what God is trying to do for you. I'm trying to put some urgency in how you think about the community because if it's you helping them, you can wait. But when it's your help, you want it now. I want it now. We rebuilt what was ruined. We built it together. We restored dignity. We did something. We used the people who would benefit from it. In the church world, we are so professional. We've got such good help that we don't think we need the help of the community. Oh, but we do. Oh, but we do. They had a mind to work, an attitude. Listen, you all, the power of agreement. With the Tower of Babel, those folks were in agreement on something that was bad. Even the Lord said, wow, nothing's impossible for humanity when they put their little dirty minds to it. 
So what happens when we put our minds together? The power of agreement. Listen, when vision goes out, follow it. When there's a chance to pray, follow it. But listen, when people are in agreement, they can be productive. And that is what happened. Okay, let me finish this up. Metro, I think you're like Nehemiah. And I want to just close out with a couple of these points that will help you to think about what this could look like. Some are questions, some are points. One, Metro, are you willing to get your hands dirty? Because Nehemiah had a good cush job. When you work for the government, it can sometimes be a very cush job. But God gave him a commission to do something and he followed it. But let me tell you what happened. God gave Nehemiah that job to have the skills to take back and lead the people in rebuilding. God had Moses and Pharaoh's household to get the experience to know how to lead people. I know, I know you think because your your resume is so impressive. You went to the best schools. You don't even understand. Boom, God kicked some doors open just for you to have access, for you to learn how to do spreadsheets and how to write programs and how to evaluate programs and, and how to develop people, how to motivate people. God opened doors and the enemy is telling us we're smart, we're beautiful, we're strong, etc., etc., etc. Now understand that God has opened the doors to take what you learn and bring them back to a community that is hurting. Instead, we are taking the gifts of jobs that God has given us and we are idolizing them and the money they generate and forget that they all belong to God and God might want to tap us on our shoulder to do something with it. It is foolish to think that our success is our own. Read in scripture, anytime somebody started boasting about themselves and being proud about themselves, a quick fall happened. Listen, I thank God for the ability to serve the broken among me because it reminds me that everything I have, including my soul and my breath, belongs to God. It is a reminder to recommit myself to God. It is a reminder to sell myself out to God. It is a reminder to give him glory and to give God honor. So those of you that might be sitting in comfortable places thinking, you have done this. Let me remind you of the rich man in scripture who counted everything in his barn and said, I'm doing just fine. God might have you on top of the mountain because he wants to take you to some people in the valley. Second thing, will you stick to the assignment? My mentor told me, if you're going to serve children, serve them for a whole generation. Do not play with kids. Now, here's the sad thing. As much as I love that church, when that pastor left, the buses did too. And many of my friends who are now on that bus did not stay with the Lord. Now through prison and heartache and heartbreak and drug addiction, some are making their ways back 40 years later, but they're broken. But me and David and Laleda, we didn't have kids out of wedlock. We weren't addicted to drugs. We graduated from high school. We went to college. We believe what God said about us. We became innovative in ministry. But when that pastor left, so did the buses. Nehemiah was on a little assignment. Hey, Artaxerxes, can I go help my people? Yes, you can. Thank you, king. You get down here, but then you heard from a new king. It was Artaxerxes' boss, and God said, 12 years, you're going to be the governor. 12 years. Like, 12. Oh, I just came down just to survey the land. I didn't come over here to stay, Lord. Will you be committed to the task? God don't tell you how long your stay is because he knows it'll freak you out. (laughs) God knows your little human mind can't handle God. So God just says, go. (laughs) Please go in peace. Just for heaven's sake, just go. If I knew everything I had to do when I was on that happy bus, 
I would have got on an unhappy bus. I didn't know I was going to do all the stuff that I'm doing, but God just shows you. Stop lying to God. You don't want to know. I just want to know. No, you don't. Lord, I just want to know. No, you don't. Put your hand down. Stop lying to God. Let me move quickly. Nehemiah wept. When he saw it, it had been happening for 100 years, 150 years. What's he weeping about now? God touched his heart. Metro, your heart's got to be touched by what's happening in Inglewood. You can't just read it. You can't just intellectualize. You can't just tweet about it. You're going to have to ask God, touch my heart. Break my heart over what breaks your heart. Touch me with what touched you, God. Help me to understand what hurts you. And let me tell you what hurts God is usually what hurts God's people. Does this make, y'all got kind of quiet on that one. Is that okay? Do I need to say it again? Ask God. He wept because his heart was broken over what the people were experiencing. If the people's pain can't break your heart, then you can't be a conduit of God's grace. I used to be so haughty against ex people in prison. I'm doing all talk about prison. I used to sing an old Beretta song. song. Y'all too young. You don't know nothing about Beretta. But um, don't do the crime if you don't want to pay the time. Until the police pulled me over in my parking lot in my church. My little brother's a police officer, so please don't start emailing Pastor on about he got... I love police officers, but they pulled me over my church. Did I tell you I'm the most tenured minister in our city? And ask me, what am I doing there? And, and my associate pastor, my white associate pastor, was parked in the parking lot before I got there. He was car one, I was car two. They're all in my car asking me questions and who I am. He got out of his car and walked up on the police officers. I'm still at 10 and 2, you know. <laughs> Asked him if I was who I said. I was, I signed that man's checks. And they asked him, was I lying? My name is on the church sign as the founding pastor. When it hit my heart, I became in tune to what was happening with reentry. It's like, wait, 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 wait. This profile can happen with anybody? Black people with advanced degree? Wait, well, hold on. Oh, oh. My own pain brought me to the game. Bet you, you ain't no good to nobody. Until you get in touch with your pain. Church can't be where you come to hide. It comes where you bury it at the Lord's feet. Because that pain will unify. I started getting on panels, started writing letters, started trying to change legislation, started buying up houses, started hiring folks because of my own pain. Just a couple more points. I'm way over. I'm really that This floor is about to open up and I'm about to drop through it. Um, <laughs> They surveyed the land. Love, love, love this community. I tell people in Madison, I hate snow. But it's because what we do in Wisconsin, I got to love it. I got to go get some skis. <laughs> and I don't know if you notice or not, but I don't want to be outside. I'm going to learn how to ice fish. In Wisconsin, you can drive trucks on ice. Our lakes freeze. I'm serious. You've seen it. I'm going to learn how to crank a hole in it. Um, you know, I, I, I got a little cheese head. <laughs> I eat curds. Listen, if I don't love Wisconsin, I don't have the right to minister to Wisconsin. I can't just tolerate it. I've got to love it. You've got to love this place. Otherwise, you'll never weep over it. And if you never weep over it, God will not move through you to touch it. But as God gives me a love for my environment, I love the people and I learn to even understand the issues. And when you survey it, you find out what's really going on. 
Scripture says that there's a difference between being slothful and systemic poverty. So you can't be calling people lazy who are, who are, who are a victim of something else. Assess the situation and know what we're dealing with here, Houston, so that we can move ahead. Okay, two more points. Um, that solution part is really big. I was having a conversation with a young man who was addicted to crack. And I said in one of my most religious moments, let's pray about that crack addiction. Your, your, pra- your crack problem, he said, Pastor. Crack is not my problem, it's my solution. You don't know, you don't know my problem because you haven't asked me. You don't know my problem. Crack is what I go to because I have no solution. Crack is how I deal with my problem. You calling, hmm, I never thought about crack being my problem. He said, Pastor, it's my solution. Survey the land and know what you're talking about. You might be calling something, something that ain't. When they rebuilt, it was more than a community project. They really rebuilt the place where the Messiah would come. And, uh, hey, worship team, why don't y'all come on back? Because I'm going to keep talking until somebody starts playing me some wind down music. <laughs> That's just to distract you because I really got three more points in that, too. <laughs> Pastor Chung Kun knew I was black when he invited me here. No, I preach a long time. I'm sorry, let me finish up. Let me, really, I'm serious. I want to be sensitive to people in children's ministry. I'm sorry. But when he rebuilt it, they did not just rebuild the community. They built a place for the Messiah to be born. Metro, you're not just, you're not just building lives. You are building a place where the Messiah wants to show up. You're opening doors where the Messiah wants to come. We often build the value of our churches by our budgets or our buildings or our people, but it should really be assessed by the vitality of the community around us. That's what we should really get a chance to see. You don't value the ability of a hospital to be helpful by the numbers of cars in the parking lot or the numbers of sandwich choices you have in the lunchroom. How many patients do you serve? How many babies do you deliver? How many lives do you save? You measure it in service. The church measures in budgets and people sitting in pews and not on what happens outside. God is going to talk to churches about the community. He's not going to talk to the community about churches. The vitality of our churches needs to spill out to the streets. So often my work in the community is just called community work. Why are you doing it? You should be doing gospel work. We offer this program that teaches non-black allies about U.S. black history. There's a woman I'm baptizing next week who's in the history class and came to church because she wanted to be in a cross-cultural setting. She came up during the altar time and said, what is this? She was shaking. She said, I don't have a language for this because I'm atheist and my parents were atheists. Is this God? Is this Jesus? I don't even know what to call this. She came back a couple weeks later, took communion and said, should I have been baptized before I took communion? I just wanted to make a statement. Next Sunday, I'm going to be baptizing her because three weeks ago, she converted and asked Jesus to be her Lord. A 50-year-old atheist, white teacher who loves black, Asian, Latino kids. Now Jesus is in her heart and she's showing dignity to the kids. And it was through a program in the community 
that caused her to step out of 50 years and two generations of atheism. We're not just building programs. We are building a pathway to Jesus. Come on, let's praise the Lord. Can I pray for just a moment?